This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Today we're going to the Transitions Film Festival with two filmmakers, Rita Leisner and David Klammer. Here's a little taste of what Rita says. We meet people along the way who are planting a forest. And at the end of the film, a film has been made, a forest has been planted, but the logging continues. We'll also look at the Green Finance Fund with Dr. Ruth Adler and Amelia Gunerich. One guest who couldn't come tonight because he has COVID is Assad Raymond, and we'll talk to him at a later date. He reminds us that this is a precious moment. He warns what will happen if we don't get behind a plan to finance the global South to work hard for their right to secure food, water, and publicly owned electricity. This will help them transition away from fossil fuels. Here's Assad. So internationalism is not a nice add-on. Solidarity and cooperation are not nice add-ons. They're intrinsic to fighting this. That is quite unique that the global north, which has benefited from the exploitation of the global south, now finds itself and its citizens in a position where unless it takes on those demands of the global south as well, about Mother Earth, about public control and distribution of food and energy, those are the solutions. That's what's unique about this moment. It's a truly global moment because it's a global crisis. Develop alternatives to existing policies, keep them alive, until the politically impossible becomes the politically inevitable. And that's the moment we're in. The politically impossible is going to become the politically inevitable. The question is, is whether we've got a plan. They do have a plan. Meanwhile, the state of emergency in Canada shocked one of our speakers tonight. Rita Leisner was in Victoria, over on the west side of Canada, and the relentless honking of truck horns drowned out the first showing of her film, which is called Forest for the Trees. Mark Carney, who lives in Ottawa and is the UN Special Envoy for Climate Finance, called the truck driver's action sedition. He said the goals of the leadership of this so-called Freedom Convoy were clear from the start to renew from power the government that Canada elected less than six months ago. And I think we should be ever vigilant about threats to democracy and to institutions. Apparently, millions in donations have been streaming in from the USA, and the Canadian press has connected some of the organisers with a fossil fuel-funded convoy three years ago, which was led by a group called Canada Unity, and they were demanding more oil pipelines and an end to carbon pricing. They also opposed the new laws that banned oil tanker traffic along the fragile northwest coast of Canada. I think, listeners, you might remember the wonderful interview we heard last year graphically describing the millions of sea creatures tossed up on Vancouver beaches in a marine heat wave and how glad scientists were that the sea life was now going to be protected from oil tankers. Now, these events in Canada and around the world are one face of the backlash to climate action. It's part of the mix. 90% of those Canadian big truck drivers are vaccinated and their biggest union has disavowed the convoy. But influencers and fossil fuel money can easily fan the flames of people fed up with government. And we know that feeling fed up with government. The people we interview are often fed up and frustrated too. Groups like Extinction Rebellion also disrupt the traffic. They also draw attention to the complicity of banks in the ongoing expansion of coal, oil and gas. And there's a scene in one of the transition films from Denmark called 7030, where young women bare their breasts 
and then thick oil is poured all over them. This is a dramatization. It is maybe offensive to some, but it is not like that 16 hours of blaring the horns and polluting the air that the truck drivers have been doing in Canada. I'm struggling to find why it's different. But I think there is something different between these truck drivers relentlessly honking their horns and polluting the air and the sort of climate campaigners that we focus on. These people are building social capital. They are idealists. They're also veterans of campaigns for human rights, Indigenous land rights and peace. They seriously train in non-violent direct action. And to talk about this, David Klammer tells us about the tree people in his documentary, Barricade. So you'll hear two interviews from the Transitions Film Festival. And then the third interview is from Dr. Ruth Adler. We learn about how Canada and Germany are both leading with a plan to deliver climate finance. And it's not as straightforward as I'd like it to be, but Dr. Ruth Adler is our gentle guide. Now we're going to the Transitions Film Festival. You can see all the films at home this year as the whole festival is online. Rita Leisner is a filmmaker. Her film, The Forest for the Trees, takes us to the really marvellous part of British Columbia, which is covered in forest, but it is constantly being uh, logged and then replanted. And she became very fascinated with the planters. So, Rita, you're speaking to us from Toronto. Just look out the window. What's the weather like there? We just had a big snowstorm. So uh, I was out walking today and it's really sunny now. It's like snowed for two days. And it's that sort of beautiful winter light where the shadows are really long and the trees in the park the branches of the trees in the parks are casting these really deep shadows on this white white snow so it's kind of magical but a little bit hard to walk in and I'm getting tired of it Well, I think listeners can tell from just the way you describe it that you're a really visual person and I believe you've recently had great success with your film after many years of making it and you've got your still photos in a book and in the National Gallery. Tell us a bit about your work, just the art side of it. I spent 20 years working as a documentary photographer uh, focusing on communities and also working in, in war zones. So in a lot of really challenging, challenging situations, but always bringing to those situations, my, my eye for light and my artist eye. And, uh, you know, some of my photojournalist friends used yeah. to sort of say, Oh, you're not a photojournalist, you're an artist. And then coming back to tree planting to get back to your question about the visual it was an opportunity for me to take all the skills I had acquired over these years and apply them in, okay, a very rugged, rugged uh, conditions. However, being in Canada, it meant I could travel there by car. Okay, it took me eight days to travel there, but in Australia, you guys know what it's like to drive long distance. And if you could drive, I could carry my whole studio with me. I could tow a trailer with me and I could bring an assistant, things you just can't do in a war zone. So I could apply all this technology and, and like the highest imagined way of making this work, which a film as well as stills photographs, I could do this because I was in the safety uh, and convenience of Canada. A lot of the young people, even though they're so beautiful and you show them all in all their beauty, you know, real heroes, really young, yes. but a lot of them seem to be very damaged people too. They had mm -hmm. terrible, one woman had terrible anxiety, another man, like they were paid such very low wages, they had to plant incredible numbers, 6,000 trees or 2,000 trees just a day to get their money and it was has that turned some of them into environmentalists i mean are some of them making that the thing that this whole young generation now is suddenly going oh climate change it's changing everything it's changing forests for sure is that turning some of them into more um activist people or campaigners mm -hmm. i i think it, it definitely is there's always been a, a, a healthy skepticism among tree planters about the environments they're working in, because you are, at the end of the day, working for the logging companies. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of foresters and scientists 
uh, working toward better forestry practices. I mean, forestry is one of the very few uh, sustainable natural resources. Not that uh, it's it is being done sustainably. There's a lot, a lot of work being put into doing it better. And I definitely attribute that to, well, the influence of environmentalists, the pressure on government to do it better. And, uh, you know, tree planters, they go tree planting to make money. They go tree planting to make money or to challenge themselves because they know it's very difficult. But you can make decent money when you get some experience and if you have, if you're any good at it and only work three to four months a year. So it suits people who can't take a full-time year long job or who don't want to. And uh, so you go there to make money, but you become a witness to the land in this way. And many come out of it changed. And I think for the most part changed for the better. It, it, it strengthens you in ways you don't expect. It makes you aware of the land in ways you hadn't planned. Many go on to become foresters or environmentalists or politicians. In fact, one of our, our members of parliament is uh, one of the pioneers of the tree planting industry in Canada. Her name is Joyce Murray and she's an MP in, uh, in Vancouver. And she, you know, was the was like the co-runner of a company called Brinkman Reforestation back in the 70s, which was really when tree planting, mm -hmm. as we know it today, was invented. And then some go on like me to become filmmakers. And, uh, you know, I've dedicated six years at this point. It's been six years, uh, more than six years since I started buying equipment and making lists for this project, I could have done anything else. And I'm like kind of in the peak of my career and I've dedicated a lot of my own money and effort to this topic. So, so yeah, it changes people. For yeah. Sure. And, and we are all changing in this very dynamic era of history. I mean, I can't overlook this interview, what's happening in Canada. It's all in our news about your state of emergency and it sounds uh -huh. like all sorts of people are coming out of the woodwork who never would have been protesting about anything before and now they're protesting seemingly about anti-vax and masks and authoritarianism but what what's your take on that in That's, terms of the volatile nature of your country yeah well i mean it hasn't been a volatile country no. for the most part and uh um you know we sat in horror watching the attack on the White House uh, yeah. from Canada, from the from like lockdown in Toronto, I watched it. You know, a, a gog. We did in Sydney too. Yeah. And so, and but I mean, you know, uh, in fact, much of this protesting in Ottawa is mostly happening in the capital. A huge amount of it is being funded by the right wing in uh, the United States. There are many, many protesters are Americans. Um, and I would say there's a confusion of who is fighting for what. And it just sort of transformed into this, you know, the way that, of course, language can be flipped on its head. And they say they're fighting for freedom. Well, but freedom to uh, completely abandon concern for public health. You know, it's like saying that you, you should have the freedom not to, you know, transmit diseases for other. I mean, would these same people say, Oh, you're you're taking away my freedom by not allowing me to like poop on tables in restaurants. Like it's <laughs> nuts. It's nuts. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm in Toronto. I'm not watching the news. I don't tend to watch the news, which may seem weird. I'm kind of reading it. You know, after our interview, I'm I'm gonna go for a run in the snow. Oh. And my film too, like the structure of my film is kind of linear, you know, like there yeah. are arcs and you know, we we go on this journey with me. I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of a little touchstone throughout it. And we meet people along the way who are planting a forest. And at the end of the film, a film has been made, a forest has been planted, but the logging continues yes. and the struggle continues. Like there is no end. It's like art is of course, a way of, of putting a frame around the chaos and the unpredictability yeah. of the world. And, and that's the power and the beauty of art and I think artists are control freaks in a way as well but my film really has this kind of sense at the end that that you can't expect an end like it's not like oh okay okay maybe bits you know bits and pieces there are chapters and there are moments of joy like we live life and then when we're depressed we you know 
if we're lucky, we have the ability to get through that depression and believe and know that moments of joy will come, but it's not all like a joyful, it's not all a parade, you know, and, uh, and what's going on in Ottawa, what's going on in the world. Like, cause I mean, these people are the, they're the same people as the climate deniers, of course. Yeah. Right. Well, that's right. Um, and we have them in here in Sydney and Melbourne. We've had exactly the same sort of things, not blockades with trucks, but you know, terrible and people not behaving in the usual way of demonstrations, you know, one of the worst things is they're honking their horns. So many of the protesters are in vehicles. I was in in, in Victoria and the West yeah. Coast, you know, Victoria, yeah. Canada yeah. on the weekend yeah. when my film won the audience award. There was oh, a yeah. small group of these trucker uh, protesters and uh, it's all people in cars and a lot of four wheel drive trucks and pickup trucks and they're honking their horns at full blast for like hours and hours and hours oh. and like what a weird way to put like in your vehicle like they're using their vehicle as a weapon in oh, a way yeah. Yeah. and the noise pollution it makes it like it's so offensive to all the citizens like like why are they harming like people are trying to have you know i waited for a year for my film to be seen in person somewhere and finally it's opened up enough that we can actually have real people in the theater and these guys are like honking their horns so they're gonna like ruin whatever like it's so great the country has opened up enough that we can go to a cinema and now these people are going to ruin that and make uh, on the on the claim of they don't have the freedom to do whatever they want because of vaccines well now they're taking away everybody else's freedom and of course things would have opened up much sooner if not for oh you have to fight back against that's terrible that's so vivid how you describe that one of the books that marked me was Annie Prue's book Bark Skins how has what's your impression of that one Annie Prue spent 10 years researching that book and it's an unbelievable historical fiction starting with the very beginning of logging and ending with tree planting so it's 700 pages of of logging history and it begins with the very first ships coming from England and France to North America to uh to log timber and that was why they came to North America and few people really know that to uh to harvest large timber for their mass for their warships so there was also this connection to war and and the way that wood was being used actually as part of the machinery of war and then you know logging uh, they they'd actually logged Europe clear and they come to North America and they think it's never going to run out and so the book goes through the generations of these of these you know families that get involved in logging and different perspectives of logging and and it ends when tree planting begins and what a lot of people don't uh, realize about tree planting is that it is we, we are in a transitional period i mean you know we were forced to it by all the devastation we created we were forced into doing something but tree planting has really you know large scale tree planting has really only been around for coming into the third generation i was part of the tail end of the first generation and i'm only 57 and logging has been happening for centuries and centuries uh so it's we're in a transitional period like i think about transitions film festival and yeah so far it's been like a 30 plus year 40 year transition and man we have a long way to go and we have to make a lot of changes and sacrifices too like you can't just keep going the same way you're we've been going and expect things to change but listen, i just want to come back canada actually has got a terrific um record in the recent cop 26 um conference climate conference in glasgow mm-hmm. they signed up for a, a forestry agreement and they led the thing on slashing methane emissions which i know you've got a huge amount from your um you know tar sands production australia has gas and coal we have you know we we are very culpable we we rich countries and i i've read a bit about what canada does and it seems like you you are ahead of australia that's why i really want to find out what's happening in canada your film shows a lot about the forest section but what about your connection with First Nations people? There was some little bit at the end about Mi'kmaq people. You know, I think there's Canada's more, much more advanced in integrating First Nations people in policy making. Is it happening on the ground with forests? Mm-hmm. Are, are well, Indigenous people allowed to or asked to do it their way? A lot of Indigenous people would say the integration is not so good and they're not listened to enough. But uh, there's there's no doubt that 
of the good that does happen in uh, policy, that Indigenous thinking is of a hugely positive influence. I mean, what positive influence there is, much of it is coming from Indigenous thinking and in Indigenous voices. Over the four years, I had a lot of time to meet people and pick people who had those experiences, of course, to talk about those subjects. And I knew that part of the film needed to talk about uh, about the devastation to the land and at least touch on a kind of a land acknowledgement for where we were and what was happening. And I had tried a number of ways to I, mean, I don't think you can make a film about the land in Canada and not have some kind of uh, acknowledgement of indigenous influence or land acknowledgement and at one point I had it at the beginning of the film and I worked with so many ways of doing it and I had an indigenous advisor helping me and then eventually I one of the subjects one of the tree planters who had been there from the very beginning Tara McGowan Ross who's become a very close friend in fact and is a poet and a published author um, uh, and is a Métis Mi'kmaq and and I said, you know, in the fourth season, I said, Tara, would you would you talk about this? Would you be the, the voice of this? And she also talks about um, mental health and healing the land and healing herself, which was her another thing she talks about in the film. And I asked her if she could just extend that and talk more more generally about it and about the, her indigenous experience, about being indigenous and how that changed, how she perceived what was going on. And she, you know, generously said yes. And then it was really just, um, just naturally as we were talking that she just incorporated a land acknowledgement into what she was saying, because that's just how she thinks. Like, as or if you're indigenous, it, it does become a very natural part of how you approach things. And so as I was talking to her, she said, you know, um, you know, it's ironic that I'm here because I'm actually a Métis Mi'kmaq kid from the city. She's from Toronto. She's not from the res. And here she was like 4,000 kilometers away on the West Coast, as she said, like getting her, getting uh, her Indigenous, getting her hands dirty and getting her Indigenous experience in West Coast dirt. And mm. And then she says she thanks she thanks the land and the people in Mi'kmaq, and so that becomes the land acknowledgement in the film. It's completely integrated, and it actually happens kind of right in the middle of the film. And yeah, yeah. Oh, but so but the film is not, you know, it's not a didactic film. No. As you can tell it's not a scientific film in a way and uh, at all. Um, so I kind of touch on things and I like, bring them in in these kind of ways that I hope. Uh, have resonance metaphorically and allegorically. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Look, it, it'll be of great interest to Australian Australians because we have a lot of battles over the forest here. You no, know, I do. I want to make sure that I that I mention. You mentioned that I have a book. Yes. And I did. So this project, it's it's a film. You know, it's a it's a beautiful five hundred fifty six page photo book. It's a large scale photographs for exhibition. I really wanted to represent this subject in all three medium that I could work with, yeah. with my, my art form. You know, I pulled out all the stops. I did every, it's my fourth yeah. book of photography, but it's my first feature film. You know, I was pretty stunned uh, on Tuesday to find out that I've been nominated for a Canadian Screen Award, which is the highest film award in the country yeah. for cinematography, best cinematography in a documentary feature length film. You deserve to be rewarded. And I watched the film last night with some filmmaker friends of mine and they're, you know, Australian filmmakers and they've got documentary. I asked them about their latest work. Oh, they've got work that's been on the boil for years you know and they've been collecting footage and people die and 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 then it becomes a a chronicle of that person's life that's no no more story no more chapters in that life and i just thought wow how valuable it is since we've discovered photography and discovered you know cinematography it's just the most valuable way and also i think it cuts through emotionally with people your you know your film really just takes us there there's no, you just can't feel the sweat, but just about every other part of it you can feel of those people's lives and, and, and what's happening to the landscape. And I don't think, as you said, artists try to frame things, try to be control freaks, but none of us can really control the chaotic on march of history and the way we're all just part of it. We can't have a God's eye view of it. We're just 
where we are in life mm. and we can picture it. And you've done a marvellous job. I hope, listeners, if you um, go to the Transitions Film Festival webpage, you can you can buy a 10, se 10 film pass or a season's pass and uh, you can see these at home and, and you can watch them over, I think, a month. Yeah, it's a whole month Australia-wide, which is really yeah. unusual and fantastic. Yeah. So really, really thrilled to be a part of it. Yeah. So we've been talking to Rita Leisner about her film, The Forest for the Trees. Thank you, Rita. Thank, Thank you so much, Vivian. Such a pleasure. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests, slow down the path of fire and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically these big large fires have been quite rare but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common so we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Now the Transitions Film Festival takes us to another forest. Barricade is a German film, and we have the director, David Klammer, with us. Welcome, David. Tell us first what it's like where you are. Hi, it's nice to meet you. Yeah, well, I'm, um, it's, I'm, I'm living in Cologne. Uh, that's uh, in the western uh, heart of Germany, more or less. And uh, around um, the city of Cologne, uh, we have uh, a few open coal mines, uh, brown coal mines, and these mines um, or the companies who run the mines, of course, they want to uh, enlarge the mines. And this they do by cutting down forests. And they are also um, evacuating people who live in villages uh, around the uh, coal mines so they can destroy the villages. And since 10 years, uh, almost it's almost 10 years ago, um, uh, the Hambach Forest was occupied by climate activists. Uh, it's still going on the occupation. So for 10 years, people are living in tree houses in the forest and uh, their, their, um, the, the, the resistance they had uh, really protected the Hamba forest. So the forest will not be um, cleared, um, but in other, other areas, uh, uh, unfortunately, didn't went so well, like, like in the Dunham Road forest where I did the documentary um, uh, last year in December, uh, all, all tree houses were torn down and the, the activists were uh, if, um, extracted and finally um, the line for the highway in that case it was a highway to be built um, yeah. um, building the highway now so yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm not really in the middle of the action but I'm close to quite a few places in Germany where we have lots of climate uh, resistance and also I think civil disobedience at least in Germany had some good results I mean uh, politics uh, politicians have changed their politics and the Hamburg forest was saved it seems like the, the, the small town of Lützerath uh, at, at, at the edge of um, Garzweiler brown coal mine will probably be safe too. And this is uh, just due to the um, civil disobedience by climate activists. Well, it's a great encouragement to us in Australia because we're in the same battle. And this whole radio show is all about climate action. So I was okay. impressed by how much the people in your film were committed to climate action. Could you tell us why they occupied the Dunnan Road Forest for a whole year? I think it was more than the highway, wasn't it? There was some sort of intentional community. It was a rejection yeah, it's, it's, of the rat race, yeah. I think. I think a, a couple of things uh, uh, come together. One, one thing, of course, is the direct action against, um, against the cutting of the trees or the forest. But the other thing is that uh, quite a few people, they, they want to find a different way of living with each other. I mean, uh, a kind of um, uh, that they don't have this hierarchic system that they try to deliver, uh, that they try, for example, they, they eat vegan, most of them eat vegan food. And um, they, they want to create a new or a different kind of communication with each other and more, more respectful with each other. And this is what I found out when I, when I was in the forest that 
people treat each other in a very respectful way and they don't they, they don't uh, measure you because you're old or because um, you you look ugly probably or whatever this is not the part and it, and also many people are really very self reflective in their way the question is what uh, structures out of this can really be transported into the normal society um, which is much broader and which is um, yeah, not so coherent as, as these occupations are. Yeah, well, um, as far away from Germany as you can get is Bangladesh. And we had a speaker two weeks ago who said, look, we're very threatened by climate change, really. And we have the best record in the world now to evacuate people and to have evacuation centres and children assigned to old people to go and help them get to the evacuation centre if a cyclone is coming. And he said, we are building social capital, and I felt that that's what those people were doing. They were occupying the forest. It ended up that police evicted them and tore down, and then the loggers came in, took down the forest. But it doesn't matter. Those people have built some sort of social capital, haven't yes. they? Yes, they do. They did. Yeah. And I think that's, um, that was for me one of the most amazing things for me was to see and to realize that, I mean, these, these treehouse villages, they are kind of temporary constructions like virtual. Everybody knew or everybody expected that um, everything would be torn down. So everything they built, everything they constructed in, in, in this forest mm. was not meant to be for a long time. And still they continue doing it like that. And still they, they, they made beautiful balm, uh, tree houses and they, yeah. they decorated them from the inside, although they knew it would not be for a long time. And then I thought, yeah, maybe if this is what life is about. You do things in your life, but you don't know. I mean, life will end one day for everybody and you don't know when it will end. And But still, you should um, go on with your life as well as it's possible. And you should, um, you should probably, uh, probably fight against climate change. Uh, you cannot think that everything will be permanently. So, and this was the, the most beautiful thing. I, I realized that people, they knew they were, would be evicted and it would, they would be evicted very soon. And they still, for example, the day before the eviction by the police started, uh, some people, they did a music session in the night. It was just mm. the night before everything started. Mm. And uh, one would imagine that they would uh, uh, cry, that they would fight, they would, would build more barricades, but they just sat down and they played music and they knew what was going to happen. But I think that's the, what you said. Yeah, that's the wonderful thing about it, that they will keep, they will have these things in their hearts and in their minds and they will go on and they, oh. um, yeah. And they will go on, won't they? Because there are many yeah. more battles and it's happened in Australia. We had one um, Malls Creek battle here and then people were there for a long time and they were very upset really that the mining company finally won in the courts and the, you know, the gas mines have started there. But those people have all gone on to bigger and better things in this climate battle, which is of our era. This is our challenge of our life. And there were so many mm. little natural conversations in your film. I liked one bit where the police are actually removing the activists. They've climbed mm -hmm. up with all this fabulous mountain climbing apparel. And they took down a little, yeah. little wooden ladder and put it up a nice aluminium ladder. And they, they carefully remove all the, all the people. There's a dialogue between the police mm -hmm. and one mm -hmm. of the activists. And the policeman says, well, look, I believe in climate change. I understand about climate change. This is mm -hmm. quite right. What you're saying is quite right. But it's not right to do this. And my job mm -hmm. is to take you down. I want to know how does that small conversation dramatise the battle going on in our society? Yeah. You know, people who follow what's capitalism tells them to do or the owner tells mm. them to do and the people who just I think they know that, yeah that was big I think that was a big luck for the documentary that they allowed me to film this so I was yeah. doing the uh, eviction I, I was on treehouse three times and the first time uh, as, as seen in the documentary uh, the police uh, allowed me to film the whole situation and two other times I was uh, brought down from the treehouse as the first person and now they also want to sue me uh, they want me to pay 1200 euros for that because uh, police somehow although i had press patches everywhere and had a yeah. press card with me and i called the police they um, they treated me as an activist and um, 
it's also the question, of course, is of course um, also how close can you get as a journalist and how important is it to be close to the action? But the other thing is I really, I think uh, the, the, good, the luck for, for, the, for the documentary was really this kind of discussion because that's the discussion that happens in society. Some people say, well, it's, uh, you're not allowed to do this, so we have to take you down. Uh, and the, the other person says, uh, yes, legally it's not right what we do, but morally it's right. And this is, I think, and, and you, you have to be asked by your grandchildren, maybe in 30 years or 40 years, where have you been when uh, there was still time to fight against climate change? And I will, she says, like, I, I, I'm the one who will say uh, I fought against it. And, and you, you will be the one who will say uh, um, I just um, um, obeyed the law. And I, so, um, and I think, yeah, everybody once in a while has to ask him or herself, uh, what do I do? And the woman says, like, I, I probably she, she's, she wants to know by herself she did everything she could do mm. to protect the environment. And if, if, if you're not successful, uh, then at least you have done as much as you could do. Yeah. And it's, uh, the dedication, the dedication was really, it's really strong with, it, with them. It's, it's, it's yeah. really amazing. Yeah. Mm. That's what comes through. So, listeners, you can see David's film. We're talking to David Klammer. His film is called Barricade, and it's at the Transitions Film Festival, which you can see in Melbourne live, or you can get a pass and see it online for, I think, it's three weeks. I'm from the Lakota Nation in the geographical center of North America that we call Turtle Island. And community radio is about your community, your heart, which 3CR Community Radio is right here at 85.5 a.m. So it is digital, and I'm, I'm presuming you can, you can go worldwide with it. Um, people are listening in America to you, so talk back. Australia to the Earth. Peace with Earth. Thank you. Teokas and Ghost Horse. Community Radio is your love. Dr. Ruth Adler is with us to talk about what next for climate finance. We are going to make this the year of accountability at Radio 3CR. And after the big pledges made last year at Glasgow, Ruth is currently working on green finance. So I hope she will describe to us what we can look out for this year as the global climate finances start to flow, let's hope. So, hello, Ruth, and welcome to the radio. Thank you very much for having me, Vivian. I'm delighted to be here. Well, um, just to delight our listeners at 3CR, I'd like you to tell us about your time at 3CR. Back in the 1980s, um, I did a PhD in Latin American history and politics, and I wrote my doctoral dissertation on Mexico and I was very involved in Latin American um, community issues and solidarity and 
there was a program called Latin American Update, and I believe it's still broadcast. Um, so back in the day, um, I I wasn't one of the producers, but from time to time, um, I would go on the program and we would interview people. We'd talk about topics of current interest. And in those days, um, there was a lot of interest in Central America, you know, Nicaragua, the revolution in Nicaragua, the civil war in El Salvador, the uh, human rights issues in Guatemala, and of course, what was happening in, in South America as well. So, so there was a big focus on that and um, a lot of interest in, in Latin America. And our programs, we would often interview guest speakers and there was lots of music and lots of fun. Not many of us had had much radio experience, so it was always a bit of a work in progress trying to, trying to record things and get things to come out nice and smoothly and sound interesting, but it, but it was lots of fun. Oh, great. Well, good on you because, you know, for some subjects, 3CR just has about the only, is the only outlet. You know, for East Timor, for a long time they had their own show and then yes. they became free. And it was like, yeah, how would anyone have known about it except for 3CR? And I think Absolutely. Latin America is the same. You've had a career with the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and you were an ambassador to Ireland and had posts in Mexico and the Philippines. So over these years, how did climate change become a more pressing issue? Well, I think that it, it, it's very much come onto the political agenda um, over the last 10 years or so. But my first engagement with um, climate issues was actually back in 1992 when they had the Earth Summit um, in Rio de Janeiro, and that was the that was the major international conference which saw the Climate Convention, the UN United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change agreed, and also the adoption of the Convention on Biodiversity and the Convention on Desertification. So really from the 1990s, there was, there was a, a real awareness that at a global level, the world had to do something to, um, you know, address, address climate change. Um, Let's move now to finance. At the COP26 in Glasgow, a climate finance delivery plan was created by Canada and Germany. That's right. And I wonder, does this mean that developed countries like Australia will show clearly how and when they will contribute to the $100 billion per year green fund? I mean, is this going to be something transparent? And um, why, why has accountability been such a problem up to date? Under the Paris Agreement, developed countries have obligations to provide climate finance. They have obligations to sketch out or are outlined in their nationally determined contribution what they're going to do. But there and there, there are also transparency requirements, but there has been a lot of negotiation and discussion about the implementation of the Paris Agreement. And one of the things that has been achieved has been the, has been the development implementation of the Paris Rulebook. And a lot of the rule book is actually about reporting and monitoring and verification of what countries or what parties to the convention and to the agreement are actually going to do in terms of their, their national actions. But um, certainly I think there's also an issue that often what goes on in the negotiations behind the scenes is not actually often made public. You know, there's the sort of what goes on in the, in the quiet rooms, you know, in the UN circles, and then what goes on at the sort of public and political level. Um, but... I think that the Paris rulebook has increased transparency and, you know, there are obligations that parties have to report um, both in terms of what they're doing with their nationally determined contributions but also with their, you know, with their provision of finance and other obligations, other reporting obligations under the Paris Agreement. One of the, one of the issues with the Paris Agreement is that the obligation to provide finance is legally binding on developed countries but not legally binding on on other, on other countries, and it doesn't actually specify how much finance. So the Paris Agreement, in a way, some legal scholars describe it as a bit of a creme brulee. It's hard on the outside and soft inside because even though it's a treaty and a legally binding agreement, within it there are a lot of non-legally binding obligations and it's really left to parties to determine what they're going to do. Whoa, I'm getting, oh, this is a delicious little example you've given us. I want to give you a, a specific example because I think for listeners, you know, finance, $100 billion, like who can understand what that really means? But at the level of a, a country, I looked up the Green Climate Fund, was established by 194 governments, and the idea was to limit greenhouse gas emissions in low-income countries. And I found an example, say, Senegal. 
Senegal has 16 million people and 44% of them do not have access to electricity. They were the first country in West Africa to adopt renewable energy laws and they received 226 million to increase rural electrification. Well, that sounds very simple to me, very practical, rural electrification. Here's your millions and no further fossil fuel development or no dependence on fossil fuel. Do you have some other examples of how this money is being spent, like specifically? Well, on the Green Climate website, there is actually um, public information. All of the projects that they actually fund are actually published. They've got about $10 billion of funded um, projects, and they've had two two, um, funding rounds. So the first one was around about 2015, and they mobilised about $10 billion. And then they have, over the last two to three years, they've had the first replenishment. But one of the problems is that um, the replenishment process is, of course, voluntary. And so, you know, many developed countries, including our own, are not pulling pulling, uh, their weight. And so... Just a minute, can I interrupt there? When you say mobilising funds, does that mean governments are putting in money and incentivising business or private? They have, yes. So so under the Green Climate Fund, um, the public contributions can be from public sources, private sources, um, they can be from other sources and alternative sources and there's no real set fixed definition of what climate finance is. It's it's a very, there's no no agreed agreed definition. So projects are being rolled out and I've heard recently a lot of people talking much more about climate justice and that's front of mind for me. And there was a young Ugandan woman I saw at Glasgow called Vanessa Nakate And she said, this is a quote, how can we have climate justice if the people who are suffering the worst impacts of the climate crisis are not being listened to, not being platformed, not being amplified and are left out of the conversation? I want to know how can climate finance be directed to the local people who know what is to be done? Um, I think that's morally right and it's often considered nowadays much more efficient you know the money is spent much more effectively at the local level Um, do you think we will see a shift of climate finances going to the local level like those Senegal rural uh, electrification those are little microgrids in all small isolated areas do you think this is there's a trend towards that in uh, climate finance yes well certainly um, with the green climate fund one of their key principles is country ownership and country ownership embraces involvement of government at a national level, but also at the at the regional and local level. And that's something that um, that that should definitely happen. I think the whole issue of climate justice. I mean, there are so many dimensions to that. There's the you know there's the the justice aspect with respect to um, particularly vulnerable communities, uh, marginalised communities, um, you know, indigenous and local communities. There's also the intergenerational dimension. And um, how, you know, how you sort of quantify or qualify what intergenerational justice is also a very interesting topic as well. I mean, I suppose in the climate finance uh, space, what it means is to look to fund projects which will have a long-term benefit to a community and, we, and, and also that when, when projects are being developed, that the, the needs of future generations are also being considered um, in terms of the development and implementation of the project community consultation is very important because often there's a lot of communication when a lot of consultation when projects are developed uh, but then not so much in the implementation phase so you know a project proponent might go to the you know the the, the nationally designated authority which is a linkage point with the, with the fund and they might have a great project and they'll say well look we've consulted with our you know indigenous and local communities or, you know, whoever might be affected by the project. But then in the implementation, there mightn't be much actual follow-up. And certainly when I've looked at some of the Green Climate Fund projects, some have been criticised for insufficient consultation with with local communities. And often that intersects with Indigenous and local communities as well. Okay. Well, look, I'd like to bring in Ruth's daughter now. She's the one who introduced me to Ruth. And she was a delegate uh, a youth delegate to COP26. We've heard her before on the radio, um, Amelia. Um, what do you think needs to be done to ensure justice? You're very keen to getting more more voices at the table. 
Thanks for having me on the show again, Vivian. I think... I guess I think it's um, quite complicated because there's a lot of issues at play, particularly in climate finance. So, yeah, there's this um, issue of getting it to local communities. Um, But there's also, you know, an issue of like inequality between states because some states don't necessarily have the capacity developed um, to, to actually access these funds. You know, I was looking at a study and of the 37 most vulnerable nations that are eligible for funding from the fund, that 13 of them have received absolutely nothing. And it's a lot of the time it's because there's war or instability. But some of these countries are on the, at the, on the front lines of climate change as well. So Somalia, Eritrea, Yemen, these are countries that are going to f- uh, experience a lot of um, hard consequences of climate change. So I think we need to be thinking of all levels of justice, you know, between states and how we deal with, I guess, concurrent issues of conflict and climate change. Tell us a bit, when you were participating at Glasgow, there were a lot of people outside and Mm. you and the little group you were with were insiders to some sessions, but not at the top sessions where really decisions Mm. were made. How could that be improved? You were having another COP in less than a year. Yeah, I I just think there needs to be um, actual, I think for every delegation, there should be a youth um, kind of, a a youth delegates, like for each country delegation that have to be there. I think that should be mandated um, and they should be in the negotiation rooms because it's all well and good to platform us and to let us give speeches and, you know, and, and to put our faces everywhere. But then when we're not allowed into the actual rooms, like most most youth NGOs, such as ours, Global Voices, we're not allowed to actually watch any of the negotiations because of security concerns online. Um, but that's a huge problem because it means like the, um, the processes are so opaque, we don't know why certain decisions are being made. And it's not real representation. I mean, there were some youth there was some youth presence within the actual negotiation rooms, but I mean, usually those were delegates who were already part of another constituency, like perhaps they were indigenous or perhaps they, you know, had some other reason to be in that room. But I think particularly there should be a large indigenous presence, definitely, but there also needs to be youth as part of every single delegation. Yes, I heard a lot of um, um, indigenous presentations. One was from South America and all people, very remote areas, a potato farmer from Peru talking about the glaciers melting. It was so riveting to me to hear his story. But this was a side session. So how would you imagine those really central negotiating sessions would include people like that? They're not professionals. They're, They're people with lived experience. Absolutely. I think part of the issue is that um, they're still really not taken very seriously because they uh, like a lot of like people from local communities, young people, indigenous people don't have are not part of the same systems and structures. They're not bureaucrats. They're not, um, you know, they're not they're showing up in like traditional dress and not in a suit. And so people don't take them as seriously and don't consider that they would their knowledge would be valuable or that their input would be valuable and then of course there's all these power concerns of people trying to defend protect their you know their defined national interests you know um and so i think you know it would it's really important to get these people in the rooms particularly because they're the ones being affected um it's just really hard at the moment to kind of get past these these kind of systems of how things operate as they exist, you know? Mandating yeah. at least representatives from some of those groups would be a, a start. I think that sounds Definitely. good. Having much larger ones and also having them front and centre, I think, because what I heard at um, a SEED webinar, so a, a few Indigenous um, representatives from Australia and New Zealand, they were at the back of the room on a tiny table, so they should be front and centre to reflect the importance of their role there. Yeah. In my experience, I think some in some of these multilateral negotiations, some delegations are much better at integrating Indigenous perspectives and consulting with, with, with Indigenous and local communities. But there is a lot of precedent um, for that. And often, the, and often the, you know, Indigenous and local communities and, the, you know, the big international NGOs do play even though they're participating as observers, they play quite a big role behind the scenes. But certainly, I think, as Amelia was saying, there's certainly scope to perhaps um, 
formalise more so that it's a bit less sort of ad hoc, you know, so that they're more integrated into the into the. Well, I think that's a new idea as far as I, I can hear. I haven't heard that before, so maybe listeners, you too, have heard it first on 3CR. We're talking to Dr Ruth Adler and her daughter, Amelia Gunridge. We're talking about, about climate finance, but, of course, Glasgow is very much in everyone's mind and what happened yeah. there. I'd like to yeah. finish on a more big picture level. There were hopes that the pandemic shock would lead to lower emissions and some sort of Green New Deal, you know, like a whole change of heart in humanity. I mean, I was talking like that on the radio just six months ago myself, but emissions are rising and we have seen how, with the example of COVID, the World Health Organization has not been able to use its emergency powers to override the vaccine patents held by private companies. And meanwhile, private fossil fuel companies were very prominent at Glasgow. Santos Gas even had their name on the Australian Pavilion and we're having a gas-led COVID recovery. You know, like really, are we in an emergency or not? What chance do we have, Ruth, do you think, to finance the zero emissions economy we need while power and finance are still flowing to coal, oil and gas? Um, that's That's the political level question. Um, I would be encouraging um, the Labor go if Labor comes in to you know rec- you know in- increase its you know recommit to the Green Climate Fund to increase its allocation for climate activities uh, certainly in the in the in the Pacific and the Asia Pacific region. There's also scope for government at other levels to do things as well, um, both in terms of you know adopting emissions reductions policies, but also um, it's possible for governments and for non-state actors to contribute to some of these international mechanisms as well. So, um, for example, in the Green Climate Fund, I think it's the city of Brussels, actually, that has actually made a contribution to the fund. To me, it's a race against time because there's also loss loss and damage. We haven't talked about that. We'll talk about that in a later program. But, I mean, we're, we're crying poor now over COVID. We're going to be crying poor in megatons by the time that all the um, crises, yeah, you know, the weather crises result in, you know, people being displaced. Amelia, can we just finish with you? What do you think about this juxtaposition of fossil fuels and, you know, green funds promoting things we want, but fossil fuels also still being subsidised and, and we are still actually promoting the things we don't want globally? Yeah, absolutely. I think part of the issue um, is how little people really know about how much certain people's hands are in other people's pockets, you know? Mm. So I think really because, I mean, it is a political issue, you know? It's it's um, a matter of political parties deciding to present different options and then being able to, like, move forward with that. But as, as long as, like pockets are being lined and ma- massive donations are being made by the fossil fuel industry to these parties, we're going to have a problem. So I think NGOs, organisations, activists and the media need to expose and make make it clear um, what is happening so that we can get over this narrative of the, that we're dependent on fossil fuels and, and and minerals and that, you know, mining towns, you know, that, 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 that there's no way that we can progress unless we continue to depend on these things, you know? So I really do think, yeah, activism and exposing what's going on behind the scenes is going to be critical and changing the politics of this country. Okay, thank you very much. We've been talking to Dr Ruth Adler, who's presently doing a PhD in, what is it, Ruth? It's on the legitimacy of the Green Climate Fund. Okay, and Amelia Gunrich is also studying at uh, Melbourne University. What's your topic at the moment, Amelia? Yeah, so I'm doing the Master of Environment with a focus on climate change. Fabulous. Okay, so here are the thinkers that we need, and uh, thank you both. Thank you to our guests tonight, filmmakers Rita Leisner and David Klemmer, and thank you to Daniel Simons at the Transitions Film Festival. You can see many of the films online this year. A 10-film pass costs $90 for wage earners and $70 concession. The festival goes until 13th of March, and tonight you heard about Forest for the Trees, Barricade, and 7030. There's also a brilliant Danish film called Solutions and a biopic called The Seeds of Vandana Shiva. Thank you also to Dr. Ruth Adler. 
We want to track accountability for the pledges made at Glasgow, and the green climate finance is a big part. Also thanks to Amelia Gunridge. I said I'd read out on air any messages we got from listeners, and here is one from Raul Hernandez. He wrote from Radio Skid Row, Your show is always fantastic and very valuable to our community. Thank you, Raul, and thank you all for listening in. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.